Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, cool cats and kittens from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and for a nation that says it loves its freedom, people sure are willing to give up a lot of it lately. And as we close in on two years of the coronavirus narrative, it seems like everyone has firmly planted their flag in one camp or another. The loyal, faithful followers and the stubborn, rebellious skeptics. Thankfully, a lot of us have seen the cracks in the COVID narrative story, as well as the irreconcilable differences in the vaccine sales pitch versus the risk reality. And although many things are going on today that seem unprecedented, a lot of us are starting to wonder, maybe this is a playbook that's been used before. If they're lying so much in real time about COVID today, did they really tell us the truth about polio or smallpox or anything? If they've suppressed the damage from this vaccine and painted themselves as saviors of humanity over the COVID shot, do we need to reassess other instances of vaccination in the medical history and possibly the entire practice of vaccination itself? Well, I would certainly say yes, and I'm sure today's guest Forrest Moretti would agree as he's written some of the best books on the subject that I've read, and I've read a lot of them. His book, The Moth and the Iron Lung, gives the true biography of polio, and his other books do a great job of putting the whole story of vaccination and disease in a new, less propaganda-filled context. Titles like Crooked, Man-Made Disease Explained, The Incredible Story of Metal, Microbes, and Medicine Hidden Within Our Faces, Unvaccinated, Why Growing Numbers of Parents Are Choosing Natural Immunity for Their Children, Vax Baby, The Curious Parent's Guide to Pediatric Vaccines, and The Autism Vaccine, The Story of Modern Medicine's Greatest Tragedy. As for the rest of his biography, Forrest graduated from Wake Forest University with a degree in religion and music, worked in the film industry for several years, including several Muppet movies, four seasons of Dawson's Creek, and many other films and television shows as an audio engineer, editor, composer, and animator. He transitioned into technology as a designer and developer of visual effects software and CTO at NextGlass, now called Untapped. While at NextGlass, he helped develop machine learning software to wrangle the gigabytes of data being generated from their mass spectrometer and liquid chemical analyzers. He's also the creator of the popular My Incredible Opinion video series, and we are lucky to have him here today. Let's get into it. The serum sickness sleuth, medical propaganda parser, and disease detective, Forrest, my man, welcome to the higher side. (laughs) 
Greg, that is the most incredible introduction I've ever had or probably will ever have. So <laughs> I'm definitely saving this one forever. Right on. Thank you for that. And I'm psyched to do this. You know an extraordinary amount about this topic. And as the intro goes, I'm hoping we can keep the COVID vaccine narrative in mind while looking at other instances where the medical establishment told us we needed their vaccine or we're all going to die of this, that and the other. And we can see if those stories are just as paper thin as the one we're dealing with today. After reading four of your books, it seems like they are. But the holy grail of vaccination is polio. So I wanted to start there. You keep a good summary thread of your book, The Moth in the Iron Lung, pinned to your Twitter profile. And it starts by saying, The polio story as you learned it is wrong. It's one of the most often misunderstood sequence of events in the last 200 years. I wanted to explain a few things about the disease to help people understand what actually happened. Well, that is bold, but please help us understand what actually happened in the case of polio. Yeah, it is. As you mentioned, polio is sort of the holy grail of the vaccination religion. And unfortunately, very few people ever bother to actually go back in history and try and understand the story of what actually happened. I had, through some research, like a lot of people, I had heard that there was some sort of connection between DDT and polio, and that was about all I knew. What I knew, like most people, is polio was paralyzing children left and right, and the vaccine came along and saved everyone. And I believe that. I took it as gospel truth that that's what happened. And then, uh, like a lot of people, I'd heard that somehow DDT may have had something to do with it. So I started doing some more research on it. I wanted to know, well, when did it start? When did polio start? And I found out, and this isn't much work to find this out, that essentially pandemic polio, which is what we call when lots of people start getting paralyzed, it really didn't appear until the late 1890s in the U.S. And so, like any detective, I started looking around going, well, if DDT, a pesticide, is a problem associated with polio, was there anything else that happened around that time that might have had something to do with the onset of pandemic polio? And as it turns out, as you've read in the book, there is. There was a new pesticide that was created at exactly that time that pandemic polio started to appear. And in fact, the pesticide was being used in the exact area of the country where pandemic polio originated, which is Boston, the Northeast. And so armed with that little tidbit, you can imagine my curiosity was piqued. And so I started doing a lot of research and that's when the House of Cards, for me, started to fall down. It, it was far more than just DDT having something to do with polio. It was a one-to-one -one correlation of the invention of a real nefarious pesticide that began being used all over the United States in the 1890s and the onset of pandemic polio. And in fact, there was one other country during that time period that also was having issues with pandemic polio, which was Sweden. And coincidentally enough, Sweden had its own pesticide called Paris Green that it was using really aggressively to treat fruits and vegetables with. 
you know, those sorts of coincidences start to be too much to ignore. And that essentially is what got me on the polio trail when I, I realized that there was a pesticide connection. Right. I'm glad you mentioned epidemic polio because this is a big sticking point when I've tried to bring this story up to people. They say, no, polio has been around for centuries. It can't be caused by industrial chemicals because cases of polio predate the use of these chemicals by a lot. Yeah, there's the Egyptian painting of the guy with the curled leg. Yes, and so they stonewall the argument right there. But we will get deeper into why that doesn't damage the thesis you make in the book. There could definitely have been a case here or a case there. The important point is that the use of lead, arsenate, Paris green, mercury, and later DDT crushed our natural defenses and made this childhood paralysis explode beyond anything we'd ever seen before. And when you overlap the hot spots of cases with the widespread use of these chemicals, the case is pretty strong. And I would also say that paralysis can happen for a lot of reasons. You can't look at one picture from ancient Egypt or an offhanded comment on some stone tablet and diagnose that as a polio virus infection. But it's convenient for vaccine manufacturers and chemical companies to have you believe that. Yeah, and in fact, even in the 1950s, they would not be able to have definitively said what caused the paralysis. Mm -hmm. So to presume that a 2,000-year-old Egyptian hieroglyph, a guy with a withered leg and a cane, was what we call polio is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Now, the main feature of polio when it first started making its appearance, like I said, in the 1890s, early 1900s, was no one had seen it before. The doctors, they had no clue what it was. So how do you reckon that for a disease that has always existed with the fact that one of its hallmark traits was doctors didn't know what it was? Now, of course, people get paralyzed sometimes. This has happened throughout all of human history. This was different and that it was almost always children, and it was in clumps, it was in groups. It did seem to have some sort of microbial vector to it. It wasn't just pesticide use. It did seem to spread in a way that a normal viral or bacterial infection might. So that's one of the things I want to stress to people as they hear me say DDT or lead arsenate, which was the name of the pesticide being used in the late 1800s. These are a component of the paralysis. They're not the single cause of paralysis. What I believe was happening is they were wrecking people's guts in such a way that they allowed certain viral infections to get into the spinal cord. And a couple of viruses will cause paralysis. Like if you isolate the virus in a syringe and inject it into somebody's spinal cord, you will cause them to become paralyzed. They are very nasty. You know, you don't want them in your spinal cord or any nervous tissue. But the body's really good at keeping them out. You know, your immune system in your intestines is very good at keeping these sorts of infections from reaching your spinal cord. Something happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where children started having a problem and started becoming paralyzed. So anyone who says polio has always existed, it's the same thing as autism. They'll use the same example and they're going to start using it for myocarditis. They'll, you know, in the next 
few months, they're going to say, oh, well, pediatric myocarditis has always existed. Mm-hmm. Look, it's always been a problem. I mean, this is sort of the first line of defense when man creates a new problem through medical malpractice. They'll say, well, it's not actually a problem. It's always been here. This is nothing new. Right. I've actually already seen that with ads that say, well, kids get strokes too. Yeah, they're preloading the whole thing so that people start to feel like, well, maybe, yeah, sure. Maybe there were some kids at my elementary school that died of heart attack. Maybe I just forgot who they were because it's been so long. But no, children rarely die of heart attack. Children rarely get paralyzed, you know, starting in the legs, working its way up the spine. That rarely, rarely happened until the 1800s. And there's a reason for it. Anybody with half a brain, you can put the pieces together and see there's too much correlation to deny there is some connection there. We, we all know correlation is not causation. That's like the favorite saying of anyone who is trying to defend vaccines as a source of harm. But when there's so much correlation, you can't deny it forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right on this subject, I had this quote from the book, a little redundant, but it says, in a child whose spinal cord was nestled directly against their intestines, mercury teething powders or lead arsenate might combine with a simultaneous enterovirus infection to create the perfect opportunity for an otherwise innocuous virus to do serious damage. In a gut compromised from chronic metal or pesticide toxicity, Many of the enteroviruses that infect millions of people each day might gain the ability to cross over into the nervous system and create the lesions of polio. So the virus had been around, but the lead and the mercury weakened our natural defenses. So it's not like we couldn't have had polio cases in the past. They were rare. And the introduction of these toxins caused it to be a quote unquote pandemic of sorts. Yeah, there's several viruses that can cause paralysis. Poliovirus is obviously the most well-known one. There's one called Coxsackie virus. There's one called D86, or is it D68 enterovirus? There's a bunch of them. And they all do the same thing. If any of them get in your nervous system, they can cause paralysis. But what happened was, when they were studying this, they isolated the poliovirus and they decided, oh, this has to be it. It's got to be this one. And that was a huge mistake because that wasn't really the problem. We all have these enteroviruses in our guts at any given time that we all fight off successfully without any sort of paralysis. The problem, like I said before, is these pesticides were absolutely ruining people's gut health and creating pathways for these viral infections to make their way into the spinal cord. And like you mentioned at the beginning of that quote, what's interesting about children is the bottom of your spinal cord, which is essentially the part that controls your legs, it's right behind your intestines. It's literally touching it. And as you grow into adulthood, your spinal cord doesn't keep up. And eventually, your intestines don't rest up against your spinal cord anymore. So that's my hypothesis on why children have a problem with it is because the 
intestinal infection was essentially sitting right next to the spinal cord. And in adults, it's out of reach. The spinal cord doesn't stay there. You know, your spinal cord doesn't grow with your body. It sort of stays a very similar length. So that's why polio was a disease of paralysis. It was the motor neurons, which were on the front of your spinal cord. On the back of your spinal cord is the stuff that is sensory. You know, it's like when you feel things. And it's really strange. They've never been able to explain this. If you were to say, well, if the virus causes the infection, why is it always on the front of the spinal cord? Like, why not the back of the spinal cord? Because your blood supply, it flows all around the spinal cord, you know? It should affect all of your spinal cord. But polio, you know, as we know it and remember it, was always starting at the bottom at the legs and always at the front so that you became paralyzed rather than numb. Because if it had been on the back, you'd have felt numb or tingling sensation. So it's just very strange that these viruses just happen to make an entry point into the spinal cord from what appears to be the intestine. And no one seemed to be interested in that. It was, oh, no, it's just a virus. And, you know, people will say, well, sanitation improved and children weren't picking up the virus as a kid. And then they got it later. And then that's when they get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And when you were a baby, you had your mother's antibodies from breast milk to protect you. And that's why that changed. And that's why paralysis became a problem. But that's really stupid because polio for decades was called infantile paralysis. Like the actual name for it was not polio. It was called infantile paralysis. And they called it that because babies were the problem. Mm -hmm. So people say, well, it was a problem because babies didn't get it until after they were, you know, later in, in life because of improvements in sanitation is dumb because babies were the actual problem. The disease was named after it. So this notion that improved sanitation is what caused it is absolutely ridiculous. But again, humans have a knack for we don't see what we don't want to see, right? I have this saying that says, you will not find what you're not looking for. <laughs> and to suppose that this is somehow our fault is just something most humans, they can't bear to look. It's the same with autism. It's the same with AIDS. It's the same with some cancers. I don't think all cancers are man-made, but certainly many of them are. So what do we do? We don't look. We look anywhere but the obvious. Mm -hmm. And you also say in that thread that it was sometimes also called teething paralysis because in the 1800s, the most common medical treatment for any sickness tend to contain mercury in order to clean out the bowels. And in the case of infants, they received mercury-containing teething powder. And you have a really great image of the front of one of the boxes. And it's just insane that people don't think that some of the sick, toxic stuff we did in early medicine didn't contribute to a lot of these problems. Yeah. If you go back and look at the earliest actual like recorded mentions of what might conceivably be polio, they called it teething paralysis. And it was so commonly associated with teething that they called it teething paralysis. So, you know, you've got to ask yourself, why would parents be calling this teething paralysis? And like you said, Teething was, or they call it dentition, you know. Nowadays, if you're a parent and your 
child goes through teething, it stinks because they're in pain. You know, they're gnawing, they're cranky, it's painful. Back then, they thought dentition or, or when your teeth were emerging, they thought it was like an actual medical emergency. They thought it was this strange time in every person's life when all sorts of diseases might enter into their system, you know, because your gums, you know, there's a break in the gum. And they treated it as if it was a health emergency. And so parents routinely administered mercury. And it wasn't like a silver liquid. It was actually like powder. It was like a teething powder. It was like a BC powder, like a headache powder. And they'd give it to the kids and it would absolutely destroy their intestines. I mean, it's mm. horrible what it would do to them. So now whether the mercury itself caused paralysis, because it certainly can, you know, mercury is called the great pretender. It can simulate almost any medical problem you can imagine can sometimes be traced back to mercury. And thankfully, you know, our mercury exposure level is pretty low nowadays because people finally realized it wasn't a good idea to be purposefully administering it to children. But back then, they would give kids loads of this stuff. And it's no wonder they had all kinds of health problems, the least of which, you know, was paralysis. So, yeah, I mean, teething paralysis was a, a common occurrence in the 1800s. They didn't know why it was. They would see it every now and then but had no clue that it might be connected to some of the medicinal medicine, um, sorry, medicinal metals they were <laughs> administering to children. Right, right. Yeah, pouring mercury powder in their mouth. Who would have thought that could be causing a problem rather than solving the potential for a maybe problem that they were worried about and trying to get ahead of? And I guess for people who maybe don't see the obvious reason your book is called The Moth in the Iron Lung yet. Why did you go with that title? What does that have to do with the story of polio? Well, as I mentioned, there was the introduction of a new pesticide that came about in the Northeast United States, invented in 1892-93. And it was actually directly related to an invasive species of moth that had been set loose just outside of Boston in Medford, Massachusetts. It was called the gypsy moth. And as any, any of your listeners know, invasive species can really wreak havoc on the native habitat. And this moth just began eating every tree in sight up there. I think it was oak that was like it's sort of its favored tree. And it was absolutely destroying everything up there. So they started trying to come up with a way to have a better pesticide. And, and you know, I mentioned Sweden was using this thing called Paris Green, which was popular in the United States, but it washed off too easily. If there was a rain, you would have to recoat everything again. You can imagine that was really expensive. So some scientists came up with the idea of mixing lead and arsenic together, and it made it extremely sticky and it was really difficult to wash off and it was wildly successful i mean these people were thrilled at how well this pesticide would adhere to things and in fact it adhered to things better than it killed the bugs now it did work against 
the moth, which was, of course, a caterpillar at that stage of its life. But they started coating everything with it. I mean, there was literally no concern at all for the toxicity of this thing. You, you can look up pictures. If you Google gypsy moth, New England, 1900s, you'll see pictures of armies of men with these massive pump trucks coating trees in this stuff just trying to to stop the spread of the of the creature and of course they thought well you can't see it on the apple let's say we spray an apple tree with it and then a kid wants to eat the apple well you can't see it so it's probably fine but oh we'll wash it off with some water and the kid will be fine but the reality is it had soaked into the apple at that point and you can't wash it off anyway that was its whole calling card was that it was almost impossible to get off and like I said, the first official polio epidemic in the United States is thought to be in Vermont in 1894. It's well documented. And interestingly, there's a ton of animals that died or became paralyzed in that same outbreak. Right. And if your listeners don't know this, polio does not affect animals. The poliovirus is incapable of paralyzing any creature except for old world monkeys, I believe. So we don't think it's so odd anymore, but a few years ago, back when I still had some sort of naive belief in science and the medical industry at some level, I suppose, I always found it odd that they didn't think it strange that the earliest known polio epidemic in the United States is routinely associated with animals dying or becoming paralyzed. And no one ever thought to mention, well, wait a minute, polio can't cause animals to become paralyzed. So why are we calling this a polio epidemic when it's clearly something else? Yes, that is the only piece of data that I have been able to get people to look deeper into the issue on is like, hey, did you know that it wasn't just humans? It was also animals. So maybe it was this chemical that was getting sprayed everywhere. How surprising that something designed to kill a smaller form of life would have health effects on bigger forms of life or all exactly. forms of life. It should be a no-brainer. And of course, the iron lung is that classic image of a bunch of people in these iron lungs that we've all seen. It looks quite scary. And that's also a big part of the, the fear that got drummed up around polio was just that image. Even today, uh, it can be a pretty visceral reaction to look at that and be like, yeah, give me any shot you got. I don't want to end up in there. I also thought this was important to point out. You mentioned apples. And in the book, you write, Although isolated stories of poisoning and death occasionally appeared throughout the United States, the British imported huge quantities of American apples and were not so forgiving when their own citizens became sick. With threats of tariffs and embargo, they were able to force American growers to produce fruit with a lower amount of the residue. Meanwhile, those in the United States were unknowingly eating produce with much higher levels of pesticide than was allowed to be shipped outside of the country. Well, <laughs> that parallels a lot of similar stories about toxic chemicals and imports and exports, even today with glyphosate and stuff like that. A lot of countries are like, we're not taking stuff from you, or we're not going to take your beef exports because you're doing this, that, and the other. And so the nations just quietly feed it to their own people. And it just seems to be something that repeats throughout time. Yeah, we learn these lessons very, very slowly. I can divide human history 
into two parts with the beginning of metal being used either as pesticide or as medicine. To me, that is probably one of the single biggest mistakes we've ever made when we started consuming or injecting metallic substances, either through pesticides, through medicinal injections, or orally, whatever. And here we are, the year 2021, and most everyone has a little bit of an assumption that mercury is bad, right? I remember growing up, and if you dropped the thermometer on the ground, that was like, you know, run away. It was like instant death if you were around the mercury in the thermometer. Mm -hmm. And then a lead pencil. You know, we had a little bit of a realization about lead. I remember if you got stabbed with a lead pencil, that was like instant death as a child. You know, right. We sort of thought that that was what was going to happen. So 2021, and that's really as far as we've gotten, is a little bit of a sort of a, a mythological tale from lead poisoning, which can certainly harm you, not from being stabbed by a pencil, of course, but and then mercury, which can certainly harm you, but unlikely to. But we've gotten no further than that. If you were to suggest that pesticides can cause harm, people would say, well, maybe, but it's such low amounts. And the end of that chain is always, but the experts are looking into this. The experts are doing the right thing. Believe me, they would say something if this were truly dangerous. This is the fallback of anyone who doesn't sort of research this kind of thing. It's always, I trust the moral compass of those who are supposed to warn us about these things. And like all industries, these people are usually in bed with the industries that they're supposed to protect us from. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned in the book, people were looking over what was clearly harm from this lead arsenic, this new pesticide, the people that were in charge of regulating it were clearly overlooking problems left and right. Either they were getting paid to overlook it directly through bribes, or they were getting cushy jobs. You know, once they retired from their post with the government, they would become a director at the company that made the pesticide. I mean, this still goes on today. I mean, look at the current, I think it's the CEO of Pfizer. You know, he just left his post as the head of the FDA, and this revolving door continues on and on. So I think probably the biggest difficulty I have in speaking with anyone on this issue or any other is you can't trust those people who have been put in charge to protect us from these things. They do not have your interests at heart. And most people are not willing to admit that. They really live in a fantasy land where they truly think some of these people care about them and we'll do the right thing and say these things. Yeah. And unfortunately, the systems are set up to favor corporations over people. And we are always the loser in these sorts of things. Absolutely. Which is why we all do this sort of research ourselves. You know, it's why we self-publish these books because there's very few publishers who will carry them. It's why we get attacked on social media is because we're saying the things that we're not supposed to say. You know, for me to suggests that polio is a man-made phenomenon and that it was our own fault. And all these images of 
children in iron lungs and Aunt Betty and Uncle Joe who, you know, are crippled for life for me to suggest that, you know, actually that wasn't a natural phenomenon, but that was a man-made problem is that doesn't go over very well. <laughs> That's and I can, true. I can understand why. Yes, as can I. And I wanted to jump to one of the most damning pieces of data when it comes to the history of vaccination overall. It's a chart you talk about in the beginning of your book, Unvaccinated. But to read a bit, you say, as I began to study vaccines, the single biggest surprise came in the form of a chart in a book called Dissolving Illusions. I'll never forget the confusion this chart created in my head. All my life, I'd heard vaccines saved humanity from horrible things like smallpox and polio. Before vaccines, there was widespread death and destruction from disease. After the vaccines, all of the childhood illnesses that had plagued humanity for centuries disappeared, basically overnight. This is the chart that changed everything for me. It shows how many people were dying from a couple of different diseases over the last 150 years. I couldn't believe what it suggested. Every disease was getting less deadly at the same time. The thing that blew my mind was that one of the diseases didn't even have a vaccine, but it didn't matter. The mortality from all of them was going down in sync. I thought that either the data contained in this chart was fabricated or the stories that I'd been told were wrong. Well, we don't have the benefit of the visual here, but the diseases on the mortality chart are measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, diphtheria, and smallpox. And when you look at each disease, their mortality had all dropped by about 90% before a vaccine was even introduced. How do we make sense of that? Yeah, it's one of the most confounding bits of data, like you said, for anyone who's actually able to take an honest look at disease and mortality. I mean, we can do this nowadays, right? I'm sure you've seen the ma all those charts of the masking. Look, compulsive mandatory masking was introduced in this country here, and all the illness went up. You know, the infection rate went up, the mortality went up, and the vaccine was introduced here. And we have these charts now, and you see what happens. People, they can't comprehend them because they're outside their Overton window, right? They don't make sense, so they ignore them. In that same way, if you were to look at mortality of some of these diseases, which we sort of grew up being told that vaccines conquered, the reality is their mortality was descending very rapidly and was nearly zero when most of these vaccines came on the scene. And like you mentioned, scarlet fever, for instance, there is no vaccine for that. And its mortality rate came down to near zero, just like the others. So what does that tell you? Well, if you were a straight shooting, rational thinker, you will say, well, the vaccines must have had nothing to do with it. And unfortunately, for a lot of people who have placed so much faith in vaccination, that's the truth. Vaccines had nearly nothing to do with the disappearance of most infections or the mortality of most infections. And my theory, and what I'm fairly certain is, what happened to cause this? It was mainly improvement in medical care. I think if we had the data to go back, I think you'll see that the mortality from most of those infections used to be nearly zero. And then as medicine came on the scene, let's say 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, and so on, 
I think it got progressively worse and peaked in the 1700s and 1800s when metallic medicine was introduced. And what happened was medicine started to improve and you start to see the mortality rate of these infections go down because medicine wasn't killing so many people. Now, again, that's a very uncomfortable truth, but you may have heard this, but just a few years ago, Johns Hopkins University released a study that said medical mistakes were the third leading cause of death in the United States. Now, this is, you know, in the year whenever that came out, 2018, third leading cause of death was medicine. This is just behind heart disease and cancer. So you can imagine 100 years ago, 200 years ago, with all of the ignorance that flourished within medicine, it's not hard to believe that medicine could have been the number one killer back then. Yeah. So anytime you see the mortality rate of these infections go down, I think you can blame it on improvements in medicine more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Good points. And now to talk about the COVID shots, you've been very critical on Twitter and your show, My Incredible Opinion. What can you tell us about the damage these shots are doing? How can we get a sense of the true scale and scope of negative consequences at this point? Yeah, the COVID shot's been administered widely, obviously. Everybody and their brother seems to have taken it. Now, I don't know what the true numbers are. I'm assuming they're exaggerated, like all data is, for dramatic effect. But the VARA system, which is the vaccine adverse event reporting system that I think is basically run by the CDC, that's a voluntary reporting system, and it's a pain in the butt if you've ever tried to file an issue there. It's a pain. There's a lot of data to fill out. I mean, you really have to want it. And most people don't. You know, most people, A, they don't want to admit that something they did and maybe posted a picture of on Facebook of them doing with a great amount of pride. Most people don't want to admit that that may have harmed them. And then B, a doctor certainly doesn't want to admit that a vaccine may have harmed them. You know, vaccines are sort of their their magic potion that they depend on to sustain this illusion of competence. And given those two things, when someone's issue that appears directly after vaccination is reported to VARES, you should take it as a big deal. It had to be a big deal because people, not only did they have to convince themselves that it was the vaccine, you know, this is something they just probably willingly consented to. They also have to convince a doctor or a nurse that it was a problem. And then they have to go through all the hoops of filing the event in the system, you know, getting the lot number of the shot and all these sorts of other things. All that being said, the VARES system, because of all those hoops, is thought to be a minuscule slice of what vaccines actually do. Because of all the hoops you have to jump through, it's not recording most of the problems. It's only recording a small sliver of the problems. Some studies have estimated it's only 1% of the actual problems. So when you take a look at the VARES system and just pick mortality or death as an actual post-vaccine event, and I'm sure you've seen the chart, the bar for 2021 and vaccine death has literally 
got to be 30 or 40 times higher than any other year ever reported. That one chart alone, here's another chart of significance, that one chart alone should give anyone pause that something very bad is going on. And this is the best, most reliable data source we have for problems from vaccination. Like I said, it's a pain to file these things. It's not capturing all of it. It's only capturing those people who just happen to have the wherewithal to go through all the hoops to file it. And even so, it is astonishing the amount of increase in death from vaccination that has happened this year. So that one data point alone should have shut this thing down months ago, but obviously it hasn't. There's lots of other anecdotal data sources. You know, you're starting to see a lot of, it seems like athletes seem to have heart issues on the field, you know, either death or having to go to the hospital. Now, once again, maybe it's just anecdotal. Maybe this has always happened and we just never noticed. But when you start to add all these things together, I've heard reports of people who run funeral homes saying they're having a lot more infant services than they've ever had before. I mean, there's a lot of data points that point toward problems with the vaccine that really should give you pause. Right. Now, real quick, if I may, there is one scientific angle to this, which most everybody who's looked into COVID vaccines at this point, they know about some of the problems that they've probably heard of this thing called ADE, which is antibody dependent enhancement, which is essentially where if you get the shot and then you get a natural COVID infection, that it has the net effect of causing worse problems, causing your immune system to respond to it in a way that would have been, you'd have been better off if you'd have never gotten the vaccine. Right. The opposite of what they tell us. Exactly. There's an issue, they call it variant escape, where essentially, you know, mass vaccinating during an active pandemic, meaning when the virus is circulating widely, rather than prophylactically, like before it happens. But when you mass vaccinate during an active pandemic, it has the net effect of creating wild variant production. And this is something Gert Vandenbosch, who's, you know, he's like a former vaccine director for one of Bill Gates's outfits. So, you know, this guy was drinking the Kool-Aid, right? I mean, he was in like Flynn with some of the vaccine gods and he's come out and saying, we should not do this. You're going to create wild variants. But the thing that really struck me about it was a paper that came out of the Salk Institute and the Salk Institute, you know, Jonas Salk was one of the two polio vaccine inventors, you know, and there was Sabin and Salk. And in California, they create a Salk Institute. I believe it's just for immunological study. It may be specifically vaccination study, but I think it's sort of more wide, a wider net than that. And they came out with a paper that was documenting specifically how the spike protein itself was a big cause of some of the coronavirus infections. Now, it's hard not to laugh, and, and, and I, I, one day we will weep at what we've done to humanity. We will weep at this. But what they're saying is the very thing these mRNA vaccines are designed to create, which is the spike protein, that's the element that we were trying to get our immune system to respond to. It was thought to be an innocuous element. 
what they're saying is that is one of the single most damaging elements of the virus itself. And we've essentially created a vaccine that purposefully produces that spike protein. And not only that, it what they call it self-amplifies. It continues to talk itself into continuing to produce it. And like I said, one day we will weep at the hubris, at the arrogance of thinking we know what we're doing by creating a vaccine that purposefully creates what the Salk Institute, these are, you know, the, the godfather of vaccines has sort of labeled as one of the most harmful components of the COVID virus itself. It's purposefully creating this in humans. Now, if we were any more competent, I would say this is on purpose. I would say people are trying to kill people with this vaccine. And I know there are plenty of people who believe that. And I'm not sure I have my days, you know, I have my days where I say there is no way this level of malfeasance could have been done on accident. This has to be on purpose to have purposefully created a vaccine that could do so much damage. But time will tell. But there is so much data out there. But like I said, you will not find what you're looking for. If you're someone that's already taken the vaccine, if one of your loved ones has had the vaccine, it's going to be hard to look because it's going to be painful. And it's a shame that humanity has always been held back by our inability to confront our mistakes. And this one is going to be a doozy. I mean, it's going to be a real doozy when we finally get around to it. Right, right. And what kind of time frame would you put on that? Do you think we're going to recognize this in 10 years or something? Because I've been looking at some information about the SV40 virus in the old... Was it the polio vaccine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, the cancer-causing simian virus 40, yep. Exactly. And it took decades to manifest. Yep. And I would wonder if this is the same situation with the COVID shot. Yeah, I've thought about that. There's a book called When Prophecy Fails. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's becoming mm -hmm. more popular. And it's essentially sort of a look at the human experience when something we thought would come true doesn't come true. You've probably heard of the um, the Purple Nike cult in San Francisco, Heaven's Gate. Oh, yeah, Heaven's Gate. That wasn't too far from here, actually. Okay, yeah. So the tendency is to believe that humans, when confronted with obvious evidence that they're wrong, they will recant their views and admit, okay, I was wrong. But the reality is, the more you believe in something, the more likely you are to double down when someone shows that you're wrong. I mean, that makes sense in a way, right? You're embarrassed. Nobody wants to be wrong. It sucks. I'm sure I've said things that are wrong, and I don't want to, I don't want to be told I'm wrong. It's not a good feeling. But there is this sense that humans can self-correct with enough evidence. And I think that book, When Prophecy Fails and other things, you know, a little pondering, you'll start to realize that no, actually humans, we're not as rational as we think we are. Yes, we have moments of rationality, but when push comes to shove and something you believe fervently in was proven to be wrong, the tendency is for humans to double down and to ignore the evidence and to try and find ways to bolster their case. So let's assume that that's the case with the coronavirus and the vaccines. Let's imagine that the vaccines are causing widespread myocarditis, heart disease, and death. 
Now, I don't know if that's the case. It certainly seems like it. I don't know. But let's imagine it is. What is humans' likely reaction to that? Well, I would judge what their likely reaction to be based on how fervently they push the vaccine, on how often and how proud they were of taking the vaccine, because that's an indicator of their commitment to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what your social media feed looked like, but mine was full of friends and family proudly displaying their Band-Aids, updating their avatars, berating anyone who didn't. I mean, these were people who would normally never post anything other than a trip to Disney and a kitchen renovation. Mm -hmm. And they are all over their social media feeds preaching the vaccine gospel to anyone who will pay attention. That being said... My guess is it's going to be a long time before people come around on this because they believed in it so fervently. And the amount of damage that it apparently is doing already, and we're only, what, six months out, maybe coming up on a year out from some of the really early adopters of the vaccine, and you're seeing excess mortality rates up in many countries. You're seeing what appear to be some very elevated numbers of athletes dying or being struck down with heart issues. I mean, I I don't know. I have three or four close people within my friend and family network who have all had what I would consider obvious vaccine side effects. Mm. And two of them I approached and mentioned, and both of them refused to listen to me. Wow. Yeah, that's going to hurt the VAERS numbers if people are dealing with an actual physical illness or, or a side effect, and they won't even confront it. I saw on your Twitter just the other day, a woman, of course, with a blue check mark saying, I took the vaccine, I got myocarditis, and I would do it again because mild myocarditis is treatable and COVID is a death sentence. And so I'm better in the hands of big pharma more than ever. And it's just like, wow, you really couldn't be more wrong. If something is going on with your heart or your blood, it seems like one of the most serious issues you could have. And there's no guarantee that that's going to go away. And of course, everyone I know who's gotten COVID, it was much like the flu, as they say. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about what this shot might really be about, because They've already said it doesn't keep you from getting or spreading COVID. So why do only the unvaccinated need to wear masks in stores? Why do only the unvaccinated need a test to get into an event? It's an initiation ritual, as you've said. But you've also said when Amazon starts requiring vaccine passports to buy anything, maybe people will finally realize what's going on. Hint, it's not about your health. And that's well said. Of course, that's a hypothetical, but if that were to happen, it would make no sense at all. Something that also makes no sense that is happening is people being told they're going to lose their jobs even when they work from home if they don't get this shot. And if Amazon were to do this, it wouldn't really surprise me. But I guess it all begs the question, what do you think it really is about? If you say, hint, it's not about your health, what is it? Well, my take on it, and this is just my opinion, I can't say this is it for sure, but I see humanity forking right now. You know, in the past, we may have been divided by race or ethnicity, by geography, by our language that we speak. 
we may have been divided by a lot of things. And I see a, a fork in the road right now, and, and humanity is forking. And some people are going towards essentially what is a new religion. It's essentially the worship of technology and progress, science essentially, as our savior. Now, vaccination is obviously sort of the Messiah character in this whole story. But essentially, these humans believe that nature is perfectible and is being perfected so long as we listen to the priests, the high priests of this religion, which are scientists, physicians, pharmaceutical oligarchs, and people like that. Now, there's another side of the fork, which is the side that I'm on, which says, I do not accept this. I reject it. I don't think humankind is perfectible. I think we have problems. I think as a Christian, I believe we're sinful. Now you can, you know, other faiths have their version of that sort of worldview. And I think we have to deal with that. We have to sort of deal with our shortcomings and do the best we can. And I will say, you know, human pride has sort of been the cause of all the world's greatest suffering, you know, more than probably anything else. C.S. Lewis has a real famous quote where he says, you know, everyone fears the robber barons, as he calls them, but the real threat to humanity is the person who thinks they're doing good because they don't wake up with guilt hanging over their head, telling them what they're doing is wrong. They wake up being told what they're doing is right and what they think is actually going to save people. So I think that's what makes vaccines so nefarious is people genuinely believe they're doing well. They wake up in the morning excited to get more people vaccinated. You know, vaccine mandates these people losing their job. They get excited about that because they think they're getting closer to this perfection. So to circle back to your original question, my take on it is there's a new religion forming and religions don't have to have an unseen deity in the form of, you know, God or, or, or whatever faith you want to compare it to. I think people are worshiping technology, science and progress as that thing on which humanity should depend on for its perfection. And vaccines are the main instrument that these people subscribe to that faith with. Now, they don't recognize that. They wouldn't consciously say this. They probably would disagree with me if I told them. But I think that's what's happening, is a lot of religious belief is being supplanted by faith in technology and science. And that's why vaccination has become essentially communion or initiation ritual. That's why when things go wrong, people double down and say, no, I'm still doing it, because they have to show faith in their God. They can't recant on their faith at that point. I mean, I would say the same thing if, as a Christian, I get in a car wreck or a tornado comes by and, you know, destroys my house and nearly kills me, you know, I would try to be optimistic about it. You know, I would say, well, God spared me. And then the rational person may say, no, God just tried to kill you and he just barely, you know, failed. But it's natural for humans to be optimistic, you know, in that thing that you believe in. So that's my take. We're forking. A lot of people are going towards science and technology as a new religion. Mm -hmm. It's the transhuman thing. You know, that's a whole other conversation. Maybe we can cover in the next hour. But it ties in with this move towards transhumanism. 
and sort of extending our life beyond the natural world. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And I am going to cut back into what would be the free show that everybody will hear. You know, I usually put the end cap on there because we're talking about, you know, where can people follow up with you? What are you working on next? But I wanted to have you give people the elevator pitch for your book, Crooked, because this is a book that approaches disease and the vaccine issue in a far different way from a lot of other books. And you might see that title Crooked and be like, what the hell is this about? And it's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, Crooked is essentially a very thorough look into this history of medicine with metal. And this is not my own idea. Other people have noticed this for probably 200 years. But as it turns out, the face is a canary in the coal mine, is the early warning system for neurological problems, particularly the brainstem, which is sort of my area of focus in my research. The brainstem is sort of like that little thing that sort of pokes out at the bottom of the brain. It has these things called cranial nerves that come off of them. And cranial nerves, among other things, control the muscles in your face, your ability to smile, your ability to point your eyes in different directions. And this is, you know, if you think of Bell's palsy, you've seen this before, I'm sure, where someone sort of smiles in a sort of lopsided way. They don't know exactly the mechanism for Bell's palsy. It's a name for something, but it's not an explanation for something. And my research has led me to understand or to believe that asymmetrical faces are not natural and that you can actually track vaccine damage fairly accurately through facial asymmetry. And I talk about this in the book, but if you sort of go through a historical record of pictures, you'll notice that people used to smile or even just their faces in that resting state used to be fairly symmetrical. But if you sort of come through, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and go on, you'll start to notice people are more and more and more asymmetrical and they smile, uh, crooked smiles and their eyes don't point in the same direction. You know, they might have what you call a lazy eye, you know, where one eye sort of points away from your nose. And you might think that, well, this is just coincidence. You know, people like to smirk nowadays. But what's interesting is it's almost always boys that do it. And as I said before, my the brainstem, I believe, is sort of the heart of the autism problem. And if four boys for every girl have crooked smiles and misaligned eyes, and that's the exact same ratio of boys to girls with autism, then it starts to make you wonder, is there a connection here? Mm-hmm. So crooked follows, goes through all the different cranial nerves, the most obvious being the nerves that help you to keep your eyes pointed in the same direction and the nerves that help you to smile evenly. And it goes through and historically gives some record of accounts of people noticing this after medicinal metals were administered to people. Unfortunately, a a lot of people I've talked to have gone back through their children's photos, you know, now that we have a million photos of our children and they can tell down to the day when their child got injured because they'll see that their child was smiling evenly and then one day they're suddenly smiling like with a smirk like they can't quite pull one side of their face up and in fact i had a lady get in touch with me 
who took a picture of her daughter in the doctor's office waiting for her vaccines because they were just bored and were clowning around. And her daughter's sitting on the little stool that rolls around. You know, she's kind of goofing around and she's smiling perfectly evenly. And then to celebrate getting the vaccines, the mother takes her daughter to a little ice cream place to get ice cream. She took another picture of her and her daughter's smile is completely lopsided. And this was literally less than 30 minutes after she had gotten the vaccines. And you start to see these sorts of things pile up. Not often that dramatic in terms of time, They're like the compression of time. But I've had a lot of people get in touch with me and show me a before and after. And they'll say, you want to guess when their vaccines were. And they're often, you know, right in between those two shots. Pictures, I should say. Wow. Man, yeah, that is a really interesting take because so many people say, well, everyone we know was vaccinated and we're all fine. It's like, well, sometimes there's really subtle things going on that you assume are just part of the way you are that might not have been. Or maybe people have eczema or allergies and they're just glossing right over that fact to say that they're quote unquote fine. And it's like, we really... We just don't have a big enough sample size when you're trying to vaccinate every single kid in the country as to what would occur naturally and what wouldn't. But it really makes you wonder what our general health would be like without the shots, without the laboratory meddling, and without the industrial chemicals we've been exposed to during industrialization. Yeah. But man, Forrest, this has been super informative. I'm very thankful I could get you on. I know you don't do a ton of interviews, so thanks for making the exception. I wanted to mention that it seems like you're also working on another book and a documentary called Fear Merchants. What can you tell people about some of the future work you have planned? Well, Fear Merchants was something I put out last year as the COVID epidemic hit. I was trying to wake people up to the players that were going on behind the scenes using fear as a tool to manipulate people into being controlled. I made a six minute trailer for it. I put it out on YouTube and it was basically, it was market research to see if people were interested in it enough to warrant doing a documentary. I'm not actively working on that right now. I do have two other books I'm working on. One is Gain of Function, which is sort of a history of science, of the dark side of science, when it's purposefully trying to make things that could harm people. It actually goes way back to before Tony Fauci, but that sort of the culmination of that type of research is what we're seeing right now. And then I'm writing a novel. I'll probably publish it under a pen name just so that people don't get confused by me writing uh, truthful biographies and scientific research books and then novels. But it's a novel called Super Spreader, and it's essentially an extrapolation of what's happening now and me projecting how bad it could actually get. So when I say I don't go into tinfoil conspiracy land very much, this book certainly will. I will push it as far as I can possibly see it. It's a truly awful dystopian vision of where things are going. So those are the two things I'm working on now. All my books are I have audiobook versions for most of them. They're all on Amazon currently, amazingly, I should say. And you can also buy them directly from me through my website at forestmoretti.com. You'll just have to Google my name and you'll see it come up. It's mainly those two books are my big project right now. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, and you're also very active on Twitter. I pretty much don't use social media anymore, but if you look at my Twitter feed, pretty much every other thing is just me retweeting something that you said. So, <laughs> okay, I appreciate uh, pe- it. People should follow up on, on that too if they want to get a, a daily dose of sanity. And man, it's just been a real pleasure. I hope we can talk again when your next big thing comes out because this is probably the most important topic that I could imagine covering. But until then, take care and keep fighting the good fight. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. You got it. All right, all right, all right. Always a good day to throw some shade at the big medical machine. Huge thanks to Forrest. Great interview. I appreciate him being willing to come out of the hobbit hole and be a guest on this ridiculously named show. The gateway drug down the rabbit hole, you might say. But I know he doesn't do a ton of interviews, and I really wanted to get this one, so I feel lucky. And I gotta give a big shout-out to Frank of Quite Frankly for helping me make it happen. Forrest has done some great research, put out some excellent books, and this is the history that really needs to be put under the microscope these days. It's getting hard out here for a pimp, but it does seem like some legal checks and balances are working in our favor. Many of the vaccine deadlines are getting pushed back. The number of lawsuits I'm hearing about is insane. Outside the U.S., there's definitely some scary news in some places that are being the most extreme with all this. But all we can do is offer them support and solidarity and hope that they can stay strong. I also hope we worked our way through the Thanksgiving holiday with class and good decorum. They want to make us look like the crazy and unhinged ones, so I hope we didn't play into that. I saw some very cringe news stories about how to deal with your anti-vax family this holiday. We don't need corporate media coaching us on how to deal with each other, even if we have differences. Anyway, I did mark something in my notes here that I don't think made it into the interview. But in terms of the parallels between the polio story and COVID, this is a short paragraph from Forrest's book, The Moth and the Iron Lung. And it's important to remember he wrote this book in 2018 before anyone heard of COVID. And he is talking about the Rockefeller Institute trying to test the contagiousness of polio. And he writes, Because the nasal washings of those suffering from poliomyelitis had sometimes produced positive results for what they assumed was the polio virus, scientists were certain the illness was being spread through the air, if not by mosquitoes or houseflies, then by coughing and sneezing. As a result, parents were warned to keep their children away from movie theaters, churches, and any gatherings of large groups of people, particularly those being held indoors. In fact, their efforts in spreading the poliovirus via mosquito bites would take on an ominous tone that summer as the laboratory in which they were conducting their tests was less than a mile from the epicenter of the outbreak. This coincidence has not gone unnoticed by modern historians and has been suggested as perhaps a reason for its particular nature. And to me, that's not unlike, hey, it wasn't the virus lab that made this worse, it was the wet market next door. See, we've all heard the line about if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it, and that is because they use the same playbook until it stops working. Which usually gives them at least three or four chances to recycle things before they have to retire them, because people are slow to catch on. But when Forrest and I talked about how we'd structure this interview, 
The plan was 40 minutes for the moth in the iron lung, 40 minutes for COVID shots, and then 40 minutes on childhood vaccines, and we didn't pretty much follow that. I had one more note about Zika that didn't make it in the show. Let me add that to the stack here. But he says, In October 2014, Brazilian health officials issued a new decree. Pertussis, also known as whooping cough, was shaping up to be a big problem, and they were recommending the shot be given for all pregnant women. But there was an ominous part of the bulletin that should have concerned any physician reading it. For any woman not vaccinated previously for pertussis, the bulletin recommended... Quote, administer the first two doses and the last dose between the 27th and preferably up to the 36th week of gestation. They were recommending pregnant women receive up to three doses of this shot containing up to 0.4 milligrams of aluminum each. So with that context, the story makes a little more sense to me. It is sad to see these kids born as they were being born. But maybe this wasn't a new emerging virus. Maybe it was a new protocol for aluminum-filled vaccines and the way a extremely heavy toxic load is handled in a very delicate newborn. It's very frustrating. And, you know, we actually met with a second pediatrician recently, and I thought they were kind of on our page with vaccines. But really, they were pretty hardcore about them. I mentioned the hospital trying to give little Theory Carlwood a Hep B shot in like the first 12 hours of life. And she said, oh, that's good that you declined that. We don't recommend giving that one to them until they're two months old and a little more equipped to handle it. And I was really surprised because that logic might be the dumbest of all, if you ask me. I can understand if you trust the system and you think these vaccines are safe. But what's dangerous at one day of life is probably also dangerous at 60 days of life, too. But what do I know? I'm not the one with the frame degrees. I also have to throw out an update on that Gavin Newsom thing. Yes, he re-emerged, and he said that he just had to take his kids trick-or-treating. That's why he was missing for two weeks. Because trick-or-treating is a 14-day-long event, don't you know? (laughs) A lot of people are still pretty certain that they are covering up an adverse reaction, that facial paralysis can be cleared up within two weeks, so I guess we'll just never know. But his press conference did seem like he was doing a lot of over-explaining, and I also thought it was a bit weird that he would take his kids trick-or-treating at all. Isn't it dangerous out there? Not too dangerous to get his kids those immune-boosting corporate candies, of course. But I thought this interview was a great one. I don't know how people can be so blindly confident in the medical establishment, given the known history, and then you get down to this level and it's even crazier. We didn't even discover the importance of the gut microbiome until the last 20 or 30 years, and now we know how important that is. But they won't say that new context would have ever affected anything in medical history. It's like, really? Don't we need to re-examine everything in the gut-brain paradigm now that it's established? They can't say, well, we didn't know shit about this very important aspect of human health, but luckily it never affected anything we ever did, or our treatment protocols, or anything. It's a fact that we gave mercury teething powder to infants. It's also a fact that we know how toxic it is. And so let's leave polio off the table then. Is the logic that we did this for years, at scale, and what, we just dodged a bullet? We poured a toxic powder into babies' mouths at the recommendation of our doctors who only followed the directive of the manufacturers, and it didn't do anything. But we conveniently and quietly stopped doing that for basically no reason, I guess, huh? 
And then in the polio story, add in the animal paralysis too. That's a head scratcher for the conventional story, isn't it? How many mental gymnastics do we need to do to avoid simply saying maybe there was some very toxic stuff introduced into the environment? The irony of the data in that chart that I deliberately brought up in the first hour is that Forrest gives credit to improvements in medicine for those diseases going down to almost nothing before vaccines were introduced. Like, he's saying major improvements had been made, treatments got better, we learned how to manage these problems, and probably a little herd immunity too. And that's a beautiful thing, and something to be celebrated, and it's why vaccines in particular are what we're focused on. Unneeded at best, and damaging at worst. Your kid could get diphtheria, or you can guarantee an aluminum injection. Those are your choices. Fun stuff. But if you like the first hour, you know the second is just as good. We talked about filling the faith void with scientism. Forrest's experiences being involved with the Trump administration's Vaccine Safety Commission meeting at the NIH. Forrest's assessment of how the vaccine mandate push is trending at the moment. The early signs of state succession. A crash course in childhood vaccines, the dangers, the diseases, and the risks. Can vaccine aluminum damage be reversed or the body detoxified? And a really interesting thread about the relationship between fear and vaccine damage. Compelling stuff through and through. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus and get the second half of these interviews. You think one hour's enough? It isn't. Treat yourself. Or take advantage of the brand new THC Plus gifting option. People have been asking me about this for a long time, and now we have a really good process for gifting. Whether you're already a member or not, one, three, six, or 12 months. And you can even see if your gift has been claimed on your account dashboard. I'm a family man now, guys, so these signups mean more than ever. Tis the season to red pill your friends and family, right? But I gotta get out of here. Really happy with this one. Hope it's a subscription seller for some of you out there. And I hope others pick up some of Forrest's books. And I'll see you soon with one more for the month of November. Take care of you and yours. I'm out of here. Your move, metallic medicine minions, corporate pharma collaborators, and serum sickness information suppressors. Your fucking move. Get through the gate downtown, walking fast. Security pass and I'm homebound. Yeah, well, that was the plan, but I got flagged, beaten and gagged, and my hands bowed. Now I'm screwed. I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys. Those documents would expose the lies, cause I know they've got a thousand files if I could just break through tonight. Clean my precious memory. Now.
so screwed But I still wonder If I could stall Get past these guys Those documents Would expose the lies Cause I know they've got A thousand files If I could just break through Tonight Tonight. 